Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Mikel Dia. Mikel is the founder and CEO of Funnelytics. And Funnelytics is a visual marketing analytics platform for e-commerce merchants. It helps marketing managers and marketing leaders better understand what is driving real results for their business in an extremely visual way. It's a fantastic chat with Mikel. Enjoy. This is the e-commerce edge podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Mikel Dia from Funnelytics to the pod. Welcome, Mikel. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here, Jason. That's super exciting to have you along for the ride today. You're from the great white north of Canada, are you? I am. I am from the cold, basically. It's always, actually, it's not, it's in Toronto. I'm from Toronto. It, it changes. The weather is, we pro- got four proper seasons here. So now it's starting to get a little colder. I can definitely empathize. I'm here in Mexico now, but I lived in New Zealand for almost 30 years. And New Zealand not only gets four seasons in a year, but it sometimes gets four seasons in a day. So I'm definitely familiar yeah. with, definitely familiar with seasons, but now you're in the tech space and you've got a lot of tech companions there from Canada with Shopify famously being from Canada. So there's a massive tech and e-com ecosystem in Canada. But before you right. start up Funnelytics, you're the founder and CEO of Funnelytics. But before we get into Funnelytics and what you guys do there, how did you get into this space to begin with? I look across your history and you have been involved in, in digital for a long time and, and e-com peripherally. What led you even to get into this space? Yeah, I first and foremost tried to figure out how to sell t-shirts online back in the day. I think I feel like everybody starts there. So I've got an idea for a t-shirt. Let's try to sell something. In Toby's so case, start- I th- or sorry to interrupt. I think in Toby's case, it was snowboards. I think that was his yeah, start. yeah, exactly. In in Toby's case for Shopify, it was snowboards. So I actually started off. Yeah, it was about two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and that was basically when I googled how do you sell online because we had these t-shirts that we were trying to sell. And a funny story is when we had these t-shirts, we printed a whole bunch of them. We sold them to our friends or family. We were in university at the time, my, myself and my partners. And so we sold all of them very quickly to our friends and family. And then we ordered a whole lot more, like way too many. And turns out that our friends and family didn't want more t-shirts. So we had to Google or I Googled how do you sell online? Because I had no idea how to sell to strangers. And that drove me down this crazy rabbit hole of 2008, 2009, Googling how to sell online was a lot of fun. You just go down this crazy rabbit hole. Do you want to make $10,000 a month from the beach? I was like, yes, I do. So I kept going. I learned all sorts of things around marketing and digital marketing over the years and started different affiliate websites and all sorts of stuff that we can dive into. But that is how I originally started was trying to sell t-shirts online. Wow. Very similar journey to me. I actually started working agency side, but very quickly progressed to having my own e-commerce pure play with a business partner of mine as going back right to the beginning of my career. And I tell you, when that first e-commerce order comes through, that very first one, and whether you've driven it there via organic traffic or at the time it was AdWords that was driving the vast majority of our traffic and business, But regardless, when that first order hits and it's not from someone you know or a family or a friend or a colleague or a friend of a friend, I tell you, that is a bug that is hard to shake. It really is. This whole e-commerce thing, I think it 
for many of us, it starts that way. It starts off, hey, let's figure out how to sell this stuff online. Let's figure this thing out right from a grassroots level. Obviously, it's a big part of the economy now, and there's agencies and there's vendors and there's there's just every kind of whatever your specialization is, you can work in e-commerce. And that's reality. Whether you're a graphic designer, whether you're a salesperson, whether you, it doesn't really matter what your specialization is, you can find a home in e-commerce. And it, it doesn't really matter where you come from. It doesn't really matter what your gender is. Most of us are working online today. So the reality is I find e-commerce to be one of the most inclusive communities that there is uh, in tech. There's the, if you look at if you look at some other specific areas of tech like IT and crypto and everything else, it seems to be dominated by dominated by males quite a lot. But I think yeah. e-commerce is quite distinct in that it is really a home for everybody. And we're very embracing of if you're hungry and you want to learn and you want to grow and you want to get be better and you want to make a living in this thing we call e-commerce. I have found so far, of course, you get the occasional rotten egg, but for the vast majority of us, it's, it feels like one big giant family, especially when you go to a conference and there's a thousand of your closest friends there. Yeah, it, it's funny that you just mentioned that first sale online. I'll never forget my first, my first dollar online that wasn't from somebody that I knew. I had built a, uh, a survival knife website. And the reason for that, this is in 2010, and I had just learned all sorts of affiliate marketing stuff and figured out, okay, you can probably get these keywords and rank for these keywords and all that. So my friend at the time, he, same guy that I was doing the t-shirt company with, he collected these survival knives. He just collected them. He's from the, the country and he just had all sorts of them. So I started taking pictures of them and my thought process was, remember how in 2012, the Mayan calendar was supposed to end and the world was supposed to end in 2012? This is me in 2010 thinking people are going to be searching for survival knives in 2012 because the, the calendar is about to. So I bought the domain qualitysurvivalknives.com. And after about three months of trying to figure out how to put up this website and taking these pictures, writing these articles, etc., I realized SEO takes way too long. So I was I got impatient. I, I started learning ad. I spent a hundred bucks on Google ads. And I remember one day, like I, I did it on the Friday and on the Monday, I got an email that said, congratulations, you've made a commission $5 and 23 cents. And I was static. I was like, holy crap, this works. I'm going to be a millionaire. This is amazing. I logged into my Google AdWords account, $99 and 97 cents was spent. And wow. I was like, oh fuck this. <laughs> I was just like, I, I just spent 100 bucks, 100 bucks to, to make five bucks. This, this, exactly. the, these unit economics do not work. <laughs> exactly. But it, it got me that first win of mm, this didn't work, but it did work. Like I found, I got a stranger to buy something with like, they've never spoken to me. They don't know who I am. I just got them to come to my website and buy something. And that kind of kept the ball going of, okay, how do I solve this? How do I flip these numbers? How do I spend five and make a hundred? And that kept me going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's addictive, man. It is addictive. And I think uh, with those, uh, especially with the Shopify admin app and everything else and hearing the ding dong of, of, of making a sale, they've definitely gamified that really well. And it's a fun, addictive thing. I was, I was running my own AdWords for my own company for, for the first 
for the entire time. I would never outsource that. Learning how to optimize ads, we were importing and retailing our own products. So we were doing the whole process from the supply chain perspective and shipping and logistics and everything else. And yeah, it was easier to be profitable in that environment. Sure, we had overheads that went along with that. When my business partner and I were running the business from home and we would literally converted one of his bedrooms to our warehouse, that was a pretty, pretty low cost uh, of business. And so our cogs, we, we tried to keep them as low as possible for that first couple of years until we could afford to have an office in a warehouse of our own. So that journey, that founder's journey is such a powerful thing. And that's a really nice segue into how Funnelytics came to be nearly six years ago now and how obviously were you scratching your own itch or was it like, hey, I've been there, I've done this. I know some of the things that are really painful if you're an e-commerce merchant and you don't really know where your money's going, where it's being well spent, where it's not. And I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to either scratch an itch for myself and or I'm going to scratch a wider itch that I think the whole industry is dealing with right now. And how did the Funnelytics piece play a part in the evolution of your journey? Yeah. So in 2011, I launched that website. 2010, I think it was. And it didn't work. I didn't become a millionaire from selling knives, unfortunately. Looking back, I wish it would have been easy and nice, but uh, nice. That didn't end, yeah, that didn't end up panning out. But I ended up in London in the UK and I actually started a Mandarin language school. I won't go into the details of why or how I don't speak Chinese. I've never been to China. I'm not fluent by any means in Mandarin, but we I learned so much about digital marketing and about funnels and how to convert strangers into customers that I applied it to this Mandarin school that I started with a partner of mine. And it took off. We were able to really grow it and scale it and sell it. And we exited that business. And then I started a marketing agency, basically working with clients on how to build their funnels, how to basically create these conversion systems. And fundamentally, what I would do with all of our clients is I would sit in front of a whiteboard and I would map out the strategy, right? So when you think of Shopify, a lot of times what happens is You'll set up some ads on, on Google or Instagram or Facebook, and you'll just drive traffic to your Shopify store and hope that people find their way to the checkout and buy, right? In the world of funnels, we try to keep it very binary. Yes or no. Move on to the next step. Yes or no. So a lot of what we do is we orchestrate a journey and we map that journey out on a canvas, on a whiteboard to say, Okay, we're not going to just send everybody to the Shopify store. We're going to pick our best product that hits on the biggest pain point. We're going to create a sales page for that specific product. We're then going to go and use ads to drive people to that sales page, or maybe we're going to capture leads in front of it. And then there's going to be follow-up sequences and abandoned cart and all that stuff to try to get people to buy that. And then we maximize the cart value afterwards based on them buying that one thing. So this is what we would map and we would do for our clients, whether it be in e-commerce or, or whatever. But then when it came to analytics, now you're looking at charts and you're looking at spreadsheets and you're logging into Facebook and you're logging into Google Analytics and you're logging into Shopify and you're trying to figure out like, did this work? Is it working? What's not working? I could see that I spent this much and I could see I made this much, but what do I fix in the middle in order to make it better? So the thought process of Funnelytics was very simple. Wouldn't it be cool if I could just have a digital whiteboard on my can on my computer? I could map this entire strategy, but then I could just click a button and overlay my numbers on top of that strategy. So I could see how many people went from this Google ad to this page. And I could see how many people went from this page to this other page. 
all the path that they may have taken. And um, that way I could reverse engineer what actually has made me the most money. So fundamentally, that was the idea for Funnelytics. It was to scratch my own itch running these agencies. And then it, it started taking off. And that's when I went all in on the software side. Wow, congratulations, because I know I've helped a few software businesses now to start to build out and roadmap their technology, their go-to-market, how to find product market fit, and all that sort of stuff. It's not easy. It is as fraught with its own challenges as it is to become a successful e-commerce store in the first place. So congratulations for taking this one on. And did you get, obviously at that time, Way back when you first started doing this, click funnels wasn't necessarily a big thing. The whole concept of a funnel wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. It, it now gets a little bit of a bad rap in some respects because people think, oh, that's great. I can just set up this funnel and it's automatic and I can just dump a whole bunch of traffic in the top end and then have sales drop out the, the bottom end just by following effectively this funnel template system that I can basically yep. implement at the click of a button as a SaaS platform with like click funnels or any one of the hundred clones of click funnels that are out there i can just this is a this feels like this whole concept of a sales funnel or an e-commerce funnel it feels like the early e-commerce days of the concept of the field of dreams concept just build it and they will come and right. I, I don't think it was ever that way in e-commerce but a lot of people got fooled into that and i think that even laterally and I have to say it, Shopify has played a part. I see their advertising. I see all the things that they're putting out there in the market, and they definitely make it sound like it's easy to make a fortune on e and through e-commerce as long as you run Shopify. And we all know that the platform is but a very tiny part. The technology of being able to functionally sell online is such a tiny part of your overall success that it almost doesn't bear mentioning as a startup. It's much right. more about how can you build a brand? It's much more about how can I drive organic and paid traffic to my site in an economical way? How can I increase my conversion rates? How can I decrease my bounce rates? It's about how can I start conversations online in the places where my customers already are so I don't have to pay for every single transaction that I get. And so I think that there's been this, even today, there's still this thinking. And I know that there's this thinking out there because I live in Reddit too. I don't just live on LinkedIn. I also live on Reddit. And yep. literally the number of posts I see daily, there's probably between five and 10 posts daily on the major subreddits that I follow on Reddit about, hey, I've built this store. I've spent $1,500 on ads and I haven't made a single sale. Or I've started up this right. store three months ago. I've spent 5,000 in ads and I've made two sales. And what do I do? Roast my store or whatever. And there's just so much more to being successful online than being able to run an ad. And a lot of people, they get burnt, they get disillusioned, and they drop out of e-commerce because they're going, on a lot of these posts, they're going, my $50 a month store fee through Shopify, that's a lot of money for me. I'm still working. This is just a side hustle. So not only is my yep. store fee, plus all of the, the 10 apps that I'm running, they're, they're nickel and diming me at death between 10 and 50 bucks a month. So I'm spending maybe... 250 bucks a month on SaaS fees, then I got ads on top of that and I'm not making any money. And I would say that a good eight out of 10 times, these are just bitty carbon copy dropship stores and they think they're gonna drop ship their way to success. And I know this doesn't directly pertain to you, but I think that the concept of a funnel in its own right, that has created a lot of disillusionment in the market that they think, hey, traffic in, money out. And they think it's just that easy that, it's, that it doesn't really take much effort and I think if I interpret what you're saying and what I read from your website, it's not so much that this is easy. It's that without measurement, 
how do we know what we're doing is working or not? And even if we know roughly high level, humans are visual creatures. That's the way we are. Now, sure, we can read spreadsheets, and but oftentimes spreadsheets are even used themselves to create diagrams. They're used themselves oh, to create pie charts. We need data visualization to be able to increase our bandwidth and our ability to absorb this information in some kind of meaningful way so we can pull the levers on our business that matter, right? You're 100% right. What's interesting about the concept of funnels is I, I there's a saying that I always sticks with me is that funnels, e-commerce, et cetera, there's a formula and the formula is simple, but it is not easy. And that's where I think a lot of people get caught up in. They think it's easy. No, it's not easy. It's actually a whole lot of hard work and it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of challenges. And again, like you said, if you don't have the data in a way that you can understand to say, is this right? Is this where, what do I tweak? How do I fix this? If all it is, Hey, I made 1500, I spent 1500 bucks. I made three sales at 12 bucks each. Of course, you're going to sit there and say, this isn't working. This was a scam. This is BS. Right? But on the flip side, okay, well, why you did get three people to buy. So something worked. Now, what is it that you need to tweak and fix and what's not working in that process that you need to look at? And I think that's where the biggest challenge is for all of us when we play this online game. Now, the other thing that you said there is, unfortunately, as much as I do, that marketers are a bunch of bullshit liars. And basically, that's what we do. We, are, we sit here and try to sell you the benefits, sell you the dream, make sure that you feel like that's going to hit on your pain points so that you take action. Does that mean that once you take out your credit card and pay us that it's as easy as we made it sound? Never. That's just yes. what happens. And you've got to be conscious of that when you're a consumer. You've got to, this is why it's so easy. Every newbie that I know, and I was no different, we all get caught up in shiny object syndrome. We all buy new things. Like, oh man, Shopify is this, but wait, this one has this little widget right here that is supposed to help me increase my conversions. So I'm going to switch over to that one. Or look, there's this other cool thing over here that helps me with increasing my cart value. No, I need that so I can. And then we just end up jumping on these things because they sell us the idea that we are going to get success through that. We don't. That's not how it works. And, and fundamentally, mm-hmm. even if I look at Funnelytics, we can't, you're not going to get success by having an analytics tool. I've got so many people who come into our platform and because it's visual, they get excited because it's, oh, I don't have to look at numbers and spreadsheets and charts and graphs. And so they're like, I can see where the problems are. Okay. Just because there's a problem there and you can see it, that doesn't mean how to fix how to it. Solve it. And what to do. <laughs> exactly. Right. You. So then they come in, they're like, wait. So I, I paid for Funnelytics, but I'm not getting any sales. It's like, you also only had 10 people come to your store. I can see there's only 10 people. So, well, of course you're not getting sales. You're, but at the same time, you need to understand the game. It's not, it, it's simple, but it is not easy. And I think you allude to a very good point. And you are one of many, if I log into the Shopify app store today, there's between 20 and 30 e-commerce analytics 
tools that are designed yep. to basically plug straight into your store, plug straight into uh, Meta, plug straight into uh, Google Analytics, plug straight into Google Ads, basically plug into all the tools that you use to control every aspect of your funnel, uh, organic and, and performance, and tell you basically what's working, what's not in some fashion. Maybe it's not visual like you, but it's presenting numbers without having to use a spreadsheet basically and giving you smart insights into your numbers without having to use a spreadsheet or even know how to use a spreadsheet. And what that doesn't quantify for the brand is what gets you from step zero to the step that you're big enough and have enough traffic and are getting enough success from something to then all of a sudden be able to optimize. Because ultimately, your platform or any analytics platform is about optimization. It is not about helping to drive traffic. It's not about helping to necessarily drive conversions. It's about yep. seeing what you're already doing, analyzing that and saying, can we optimize this? And if we can, what are the biggest levers we can pull to optimize as fast as humanly possible? So in other words, let's go for the low-hanging fruit instead of the stuff that's, instead of the stuff that's way up there in the sky. Let, let's go for the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. But that presupposes, and there's a natural expectation built into that, that you're getting a decent enough volume of traffic, whether it be through organic performance or both, that you're getting a decent enough conversions on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis, that you're getting enough data ultimately at the end of the day to actually be able to mine and milk that for that optimization strategy. And that feels like the thing that you're pointing out and you're very transparent and honest about, but it's something that I'd like to say very right up front, and I try to be as transparent about this on the podcast as possible, is that until you are a piece of popcorn that has popped even just a little bit, it's very difficult for any analytics tool to significantly help you improve your business and tell you, you, you basically got to reach a little bit of escape velocity before you're actually going to be able to improve anything. 100%. You have to have a consistent flow of traffic. You have to have a consistent set of conversions to look at sales. And then now you can't optimize 10 sales a month. It's if you're just getting 10 sales a month off of a hundred visitors, great. Okay. You're converting 10%. Okay. Good for you. But what is an increase in that? You're going to go from hundred to 11. It's too low volumes to basically make any meaningful change, right? You're gonna have to wait another three, four, five, ten 10 months before you actually have, oh, this made a difference. And I think one of the things that we, like we, I'll be honest, one of the things we've struggled with at Funnelytics with regards to churn and regards to just getting adoption is that problem, right? Because we've, because our tool is so visual, people love the, they want it. But then because they're not at that level where analytics is useful and they can't get meaningful insights out of it, they just end up churning. So from our standpoint, we've struggled to continuously grow because so many people come into our tool because of the visual element of it. They all know they need data. So they're all like, I need data to make decisions. So yeah, but do you have data or do you, are you just getting started and trying to make your first sale? Because first thing you should be thinking about is, am I making a sale? Because if you're not making money consistently, then your problem isn't optimizing the funnel. Your problem is probably your offer, your audience, something's not working here. So you need to go back to the drawing board and make sure that you get the fundamentals first, reach that velocity that you just mentioned so that, okay, great, you are making consistent sales. That means that there's people who care about buying what you're selling. So now we can look at it and we can say, oh, maybe this page could probably increase by 
you know, because you forgot some of these things, or here's a bottleneck. It looks like a lot of people are dropping off right here. Once you understand that, then you can make some thorough decisions for sure. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think that this also alludes back to this. And, and look, I know this is a little bit off topic in relation directly to Funnelytics, but I think it's foundational in that I want to help you retain more people inside Funnelytics and not just go off and click on the, the latest shiny tool that, that we've talked about because they think it's going to improve their business overnight. There's, there's very little that happens in e-commerce or any business for that matter overnight. It's, it's, a, it's a long, hard slog. It's just like with me, nearly 300 episodes of the podcast and I'm still a small podcast. I'm still, I'm, I'm never going to be freaking Joe Rogan. Despite this consistent, steady effort, it is, it, it, we're up and to the right, but it's not like we're growing to the moon in, in a month. That's not how this game works. And so there is a certain amount of commitment and tenacity and grit that comes into play here to see success in e-commerce. And I think one of the other things is that in e-commerce, it's easy to get caught up into the get-rich-quick mindset or mentality around it because it just from the outside looking in, it looks so easy. And we see the Amazons of the world. We see the Amazon sellers of the world. We see some of them just absolutely killing it and caning it. But first of all, you don't know how hard it was for them to get there. You also don't know what their retained margins are. So you'd actually know a really true – they might be doing hundreds of thousands of sales based on the feedback you see online. But that doesn't necessarily mean, A, that they're profitable – or that they're growing and that they're growing unit sales. And the funny thing is, you could be growing revenue, for example, just because of inflation. When inflation is running between 6 and 9% a year, you could be running a, an increased revenue run rate with, with no increasing profitability and no increasing unit sales. And nobody would know the difference because you're talking about, oh, we went from 100,000 sales a month this year to 150,000 uh, a month sales next year. And a lot of that could be just tied back to inflation. And so I think I think when it comes to your platform or any other analytics platform, we have this mistaken idea inside our industry that you can come into it as a total newbie with zero experience and you can figure it all out very quickly. Now, you can figure it out yourself, but oftentimes it's going to take partners. I've been doing this 23 years. You've been in this well over a decade. The reality is that we earned our stripes through a lot and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And I had my own e-commerce uh, business for over seven years, and I have the yep. war wounds uh, to, to show that. And I and, the, and then I went into to agency land. Then I started uh, working for very large brands. Then I started my consultancy company. So it wasn't like I just dropped into consultancy. You didn't drop into Funnelytics overnight. This was born out of a lot of pain over a sustained period of time. And I think that a lot of these people would be better off if they were starting out fresh it would be better instead of taking that side hustle money and dumping it into a Shopify website and trying to figure it out themselves, they would be better off hiring some people, at least initially, to help them. Or uh, what my recommendation is, these guys, nine times out of 10, they should be going and working for an e-commerce brand for two to five years, get close to the sun so they figure out what the North Star is, so they can figure out how the hell this whole system works. Go and work for a profitable, they don't have to be massive, but as long as they're profitable, go work for a profitable e-commerce brand. Go in and be this whole thing. When people get out of university, a lot of times they do internships, right? A lot of industries do internships, but there's not a lot of internships in e-commerce. Go and make your own internship. Go and work for just enough money to feed yourself and pay your rent, whatever it is. But really, your whole idea is to learn before you go out and start your own business in a, in a field that you know zero about. I, I just feel like this is a conversation that is just not being had enough. And there's a ton of apps in the app store like yours that are just, they're seeing ridiculous rates of churn because the funnel, 
for lack of a better term, of startups with side hustles coming into e-commerce. It's just gone through the roof since COVID. And uh, most of them, they're not going to make it. No, they're, I used to uh, hang out with friends. And when I was first in this game of like just entrepreneurship in general, 10 years or more ago, I was so confused as to why they wouldn't be an entrepreneur. Like, why do you want a job? Why are you not? You can build your own life. And, and even at the time, I was very bought into the concept of you make $10,000 from a beach from your laptop. And I went down that rabbit hole. So for me, in my mind, I was like, why would you ever want a job if you can do this? And, and you just have to figure it out. 10 years later, or 12 at this stage, 15, I don't even know how long it's been. But now if somebody comes to me and says, I want to be an entrepreneur, I'm like, do you really? Because it is not what you think it is. It is not as easy as you think it is. Now, I wouldn't change it for the world. I, I'm always going to be an entrepreneur and I've figured out a lot of this game. Uh, but you need to realize that you're about to get punched in the face and you're going to eat a lot of shit and you're going to keep eating a lot of shit until you figure out some more. And then you're going to get stuff with probably more crap. And you're going to realize that it's really not easy. But if you are willing to sustain and push through and fight your way through to make it to the end, that's when you can start to see some of these breakthroughs. What really bothers me is when people sit there and say, like, if somebody is lucky enough, which happens once in a while, but if you're lucky enough to be 20 years old, you launched your Shopify store at 19 and a half, and somehow you've blown it out of proportion, but then you go and actually advertise the fact that you did this, that is what bothers me the most because then other people assume that they can spend six months and have a million dollar business. And it doesn't work that way for most people, right? It, it doesn't work that way. And, and even that person who, what's interesting is you always find that these stories, what happens is that person blows up, they get a whole bunch of money and then something works, but then they don't know how to do whatever's next and they come right back down. And, and the law of averages starts making realize that, yeah, like you went up, but now you got to come back down and realize that you're actually really at this level. So congratulations on that first spike. Now go keep figuring it out. And I agree with you. I think we, we have too much of a make money online mentality. But then again, I, do you blame it? Because now you sit there and you say, okay, look at Mr. Beast on YouTube. What people don't realize is he's 24, 25, 26. I don't know how old he is now. He started posting videos at 12 yes, and daily, right? Uh -huh. And now he's Mr. Beast and he's got hundreds of millions of views per video. But what people don't realize is that grind. But we're in such a world of pull out my phone, swipe through Instagram. Oh, look at this guy in front of a shiny car. Swipe my phone. Oh, look. Oh man. A hundred million views. Wait, he gets how much per view? Oh man. All he does is make videos. Swipe my phone. I hate my job. This sucks. And that's just the, so do we, can you really blame them for feeling like this is an escape route? Not really, but you then have to realize that a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. A lot of it is an illusion at the end of the day, just like filters on Instagram. It's a, it's an interesting game, an interesting world. I think it's getting crazier with AI and 
what people perceive they can do for the amount of people I've met who have just like created AI products and blown it out of the water because of because of it's so hot right now. It, it's insane. So that's just the world we live in, though. Yeah, and hopefully you and I are bringing a little bit more reality to that and, and bringing people back into the stratosphere when it comes to what how hard it is to build a genuine, viable, sustainable yes. business and yep. business model. That's hard. If, if it was easy, everyone would do it, and we wouldn't see people dropping out of our game uh, at a huge rate of knots. And especially if you started e-commerce uh, at the beginning of COVID, then you would think you were God because a rising tide floats all boat. The TAM exploded yeah. and almost everybody that started an e-commerce store pre-COVID. Basically, if you couldn't make money during COVID in e-commerce, you will never make money in e-commerce. <laughs> but that's the reality of it, right? It just it was fuel on the fire. But if we get, get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of funnelytics and what that looks like in terms of integrating both because presumably you've got to integrate with the e-com store. You've got to integrate with your Google Ads account. You've got to uh, integrate with your Meta Ads account. What types of systems are you typically pulling data from to give these rich uh, data visualizations? Yeah, so we focus strictly on people analytics. So fundamentally where data falls is when you have siloed data like Google ads over here and Shopify data over here and your Stripe account over here or whatever, your CRM, your email, everything is siloed. Fundamentally, the way that Funnelytics works is we track so when somebody comes to your website, we now start to look at them. They're an anonymous user. We don't know who they are at this stage, but we know that this person has a user ABCXYZ, has visited your product store, then has went over to this particular product, then clicked on the add to cart button, maybe then went back and clicked on an email, whatever it is, right? So we track that person's journey. And then fundamentally, when we want to display that on the canvas, all you need, all you are really displaying is the, those different touch points. So what are the different traffic sources that is a touch point associated with that person? What are the pages that they visited? So when I connect two elements on the canvas and I say, I want to know how many people landed on my homepage and then went and purchased something. So I can just drag to, and all it's really doing is, is surfacing all of that data to basically say there's 5,000 people who have landed on your homepage. And then out of those 5,000 people, if we look at all of their timelines, there's X amount of those people who actually went to this checkout, right? So that's how we can got now give you the, the data and, and surface it. We do our own tracking. So Funnelytics is, has built its own tracking system. We actually, we started doing user-based tracking back in 2018 before Google Analytics switched over to GA4. And now GA4 is based on user tracking and as opposed to sessions, because we realized that fundamentally when data is siloed like this, you can't correlate a somebody clicking on a Facebook ad to them being this person in your Shopify store or this email. So one concept that we talk about a lot that unfortunately e-commerce hasn't adopted yet. They're still very tied to this, but more and more we're starting to see this in more e-learning space. And especially when it comes to coaching and high ticket sales and stuff like that is the concept of contribution versus attribution. So attribution will basically say that I have a Facebook ad, I have an email, and I have a Google retargeting ad, let's say, right? I generated $100. 
So with that $100, if I'm on a first click attribution, let's say my Facebook is that first click, all $100 is attributed to Facebook. That means that mm -hmm. Facebook was responsible for the $100. Click would say that Google retargeting was responsible for the $100. If you divide it by three, you got $33 across the board, right? Okay, if I flip that and I say to you, what if it's only one person who bought and spent that $100? How do you then attribute or divide that person across these touch points? You can't say that this book is the reason that this person bought because they also had email and they had Google as part of their journey to get to that purchase. So we look at contribution, we ask ourselves, does this touch point actually contribute to a person's timeline and the person's journey to get to that purchase? And when you surface data in Funnelytics, we tell you that, hey, this ad, this email, and this touch point were all part of this person's journey. And here's another 50 people that also had these different touch points, right? So that's how we start to be able to like say, oh man, this page that I have right here is useless because it doesn't contribute to anybody actually becoming a customer. Maybe a bunch of people visited it, but nobody's buying as part of their journey in there. So we set up our own tracking. We pull in data from Shopify for your purchases, your form submissions, but then we set up all of our internal tracking on your Shopify store. And help me understand, because I'm not the attribution guy, despite having multiple people on the podcast to think they, and do in many cases, know kind of everything there is to know about attribution. How, in the age of a cookie-less world, a third-party cookie-less world, how are we then linking the journey that someone's having? Is it based on the timing of something happening? So I know, okay, I know someone clicked on my Facebook ad at 12.01, and 12.01 and 12.01 and, and 30 seconds someone hit my website. So it's a pretty good likelihood. It's, I can directly correlate that instance of a traffic or a visitor directly back to Facebook because of the timestamps of when things occur. So how are you linking, especially if they're an unknown user at that point, they're yeah. an unauthenticated user, how are you linking together all those touch points in a given journey when the platforms are not necessarily giving you that information because they can't give you that information because they're not setting cookies? Yeah, so you, it, it's a challenge, first and foremost, let's be very clear. However, you don't think about it in the sense of timeline, because let's say you're spending $100,000, you've got a lot of people at 1201 hitting that, right? So it doesn't yeah, really, sure. it doesn't really work. So fundamentally, you need to have tracking that's set up on your core website. So that's why when we set up our tracking, what happens is anybody who comes in from an ad, because of the parameters that we set up on the URLs, we ah. know that, okay, great. Uh, somebody's landed on that with these sets of parameters. Every time somebody lands on my page, we're gonna assign a user ID to that person, right? So we know yeah. that this user ABCXYZ came from these sets of parameters that was their first thing, right? At some stage, they're gonna keep their journey going. They're gonna keep that session moving. They're gonna bounce around. So we're gonna keep logging all of that. Now. Here's what happens. Either this person stops and comes back using the same device, and in which case, great, we can continue that session. If they stop and come back using a different device, then at some stage, we need some identifier. We need mm -hmm. something to say that this is the same person as this. Now, the challenging part is when somebody comes in and they're constantly anonymous. So mm -hmm. meaning, 
they've never filled out any sort of form or anything that will help us identify who they are. So mm -hmm. our job as marketers should always be to capture form submissions, purchases, anything that's going to give us an email address, a something that can de-anonymize de this person so that when they do come back from a different device, technically, if you think of how Google and Chrome works, that's fundamentally how Chrome works, right? Is mm -hmm. because you're logged into your Chrome account and Google knows yep. that when you're logged into that account, you're browsing the internet, hence why they know everything about you, right? Because yep. you're on one account and that's the identifier. With us, the identifier comes down to being able to fill out some sort of form. Once that form comes in, now we know that this is no longer an anonymous user. We know that this is Jason and here's his email. And this is the journey that he went through so far. Then he opens up an email from his phone and he clicks on it. And we, because of the parameters, we know, okay, this is still Jason. Cool. Let's tie that session together. And now we know Jason has these two devices. So we capture that information. But is it challenging? Is it getting harder? Absolutely. And it's a, an interesting battle, right? Because users want privacy, so they say. Business want data. Users want personalization, but they want privacy. And without business knowing anything about you, how can I personalize anything for you? So it's an interesting battle that you face because we will never get to a stage, I don't believe, where users will have 100% privacy. We're way beyond that at that stage. It's a little late. Facebook knows a lot about us. So does Google, et cetera. So um, does Apple. So does everybody so else. Does Apple, so does everybody, basically. And on the flip side, want all of this to be customized to us. I want my YouTube feed to know that I like basketball and show me basketball clips. Don't show me something about cooking. I don't care. And that's the weird battle that I think we're going to come at a crossroads where it's like, how do we solve this? Because we still need to track. We still need to customize. We still need to give a great experience, but I still want privacy. So right now, Funnelytics fundamentally allows you to track really well. Who knows what happens in two years? It's an ever-evolving landscape. And I postulate, and I've postulated many times on this podcast that users don't give a shit about privacy. That if they gave a shit about privacy, they wouldn't carry a tracker in their pocket and sleep with it underneath their pillow at night. And yeah. we're told by Google, we're told by Apple, and we're told by Meta that users can care about privacy. We're told by governments that people care about privacy, but they have very self-serving reasons to tell us that customers care about privacy and to legislate privacy, right? They have very self-serving reasons for reinforcing their walled gardens at this stage of their life cycle. We yep. have, they have a very vested interest in making sure that it's very difficult for marketers like you and me and people that work online and in e-commerce to, to, they make it very difficult for us to not go through the gatekeepers to secure traffic, to secure new business, all those sorts of things. And then to pay the piper, so to speak, to pay the gatekeepers along the way, everybody, it's like a toll road. Basically the internet is like one giant toll road now, particularly if you're an e-commerce player. And I just, I don't buy the fact that people generally give a shit about privacy. If they gave a shit about privacy, 99% of the time on a cookie bar, they would say, no, I don't agree. And they would leave the site, but they don't. We know from the data that 99.9% .9 of people click yes as fast as they can just to yeah, get the bar to disappear so that they can carry on with their journey. Just stop asking me, stop asking me. Just let me get on about my day with as little of friction as possible. And I don't know anyone who would tell you 
just like you, I don't know anybody that would tell you, not only do I want YouTube to know what my interests are so they can feed me up the right videos, but I also want YouTube and lots of other properties to know what I like so that at least, because they're, they're not going to stop showing me ads, right? They're going to always nope. show me ads, but at least they could show me relevant ads that I might be interested in or stuff I might be interested in. And with total privacy, that goes away too. So they're not going to show us less ads. They're just going to show us less relevant ads. So I, I know I'm a little bit on a tangent here, but I just think this whole privacy thing is a complete red herring. I think it's a straw man argument. And I think this is something that all of us are going to have to deal with move, moving forward. And I think users are going to have to get to a place where they understand that, sure, we can give you the highest level of privacy possible, but that's going to mean a worse user experience for you. So you're going to have to, you're going to, have to opt in to some of our offerings in terms of trading a bit of information for a much better, much more personalized experience. That's going to be a discussion that users and consumers are going to have with the merchants that they love and brands that they know and brands that they trust. They're going to have to give some level of universal authorization. Because, for example, if I'm a Nike customer and I'm buying direct to consumer off Nike, I've got the Nike app on my phone, I go into the Nike stores, I shop through Nike's e-commerce websites. If I do all those things because I love the Nike brand and I love their products, well, I want them to know me at every single touch point that I engage with them. I want them to have all that information right at their fingertips with my purchase history and my contact when I contact customer service and my live chats and every, I want them to have access to all that stuff so I don't have to tell my story twice when I talk to two different live chat agents. I want them to have access to the whole bloody lot. And I think that's the direction that we're going to have to go as an industry is we're just going to have to be a lot more transparent and a lot more brutally honest with our customers to say, look, because of new privacy laws, unless you opt into these three things, for example, then you're going to have a pretty bland experience with us. Sure, we're going to do everything in our power to give you a good experience at every touch point, but this data is not going to persist across every time you talk to us unless you explicitly tell us we can. And this is just going to have to be a very hard discussion that brands are going to have with consumers. And I think that Funnelytics is going to give the ability for those merchants to understand which of these channels from a contribution perspective are the most important to have that conversation with consumers about. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And I think what's interesting about GDPR, and I remember when GDPR came out, this was basically like within the same year as Funnelytics was launched. And I was, we were freaking out. We we're like, oh no, what are we going to do? We're, we're tracking. It turns out nobody gives a shit. Like nobody cares. No, like only the, there's some very strict European countries that care and they pay attention to it but as consumers you're 100 right like whenever i see that pop up just get it out of my way yes fine i don't care it doesn't matter i just want to read the news like it doesn't mean anything to me and i think you you think of all of these things like all we're really doing is we're creating more barriers for people to say yes to things that they don't read anyways like when was the last time you read a terms of service for anything and i was like and yes like scroll as fast as i can so i can get to the agree check cool i don't know what i just agreed to but it doesn't matter just let me move forward i'll deal with the repercussions if there are some later and i think that's the issue is like we're gonna get to this in a sense police state internet where everything will require opt-ins 
for what exactly? What exactly well, and are practically we opting speaking, for? You won't be able to live a normal life unless you opt in. So they're yeah. saying, hey, you had a choice, choice. It's, it's like, I guess it's like the, the jab totally. mandates all around the world. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, it's exactly. exactly the same thing. It's here's a jab mandate. You got a choice. You don't have to get jabbed, but you're probably going to lose your job if you don't. Uh, especially yeah. if you worked in healthcare, for example, you, you are definitely going to be able to job. We, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to do this. Yeah. You're not going to totally. be able to feed yourself. You're not going to pay your mortgage, but you got a choice. It's just absurd. So yeah, look, this is an interesting, we could probably spend a whole lot of time on the privacy tangent, but as it relates to your technology, I, I feel like there will be, something's got to give in our industry over time. And I think once once third-party cookies go the way of the dodo, I don't, Flock's already been killed off. A lot of the privacy addressing initiatives by Google have been killed off internally. I don't think anybody has a truly viable replacement for third-party cookies yet. We're going to see how this plays out, but the reality is marketers are going to be crying bloody murder if third-party, like when third-party cookies truly go away and they go away from everywhere consumers are going to be crying bloody murder if they don't have the option to say yes like they do with the cookie bar today. If they don't have an easy way to opt in to having a personalized experience that's seamless and follows them across the internet uh, based on the category of website that they're visiting, I think it's not just marketers that are going to be crying out. I think it's consumers. They're going to go, hang on a second. The last time I visited this website, it was an amazing personalized experience and now it's complete rubbish. Uh, consumers are going to be Consumers are going to be just as up in arms as, as marketers are uh, going to be. It's going to be very interesting to watch, but I think there will be a solution that comes along because the market will demand it. Everybody will demand it. And even the people trying to pass this legislation will start to hate the Internet. If, they, if everything goes through that they want to go through from a privacy perspective, they're going to hate using the Internet. We all well, have a vested interest in making sure that this works. Yeah, fundamentally, this is where you can't rely on Facebook data. You can't rely on Google Analytics data. You can't rely on really any third-party data, you've got to have a solution that is first-party where it's your own data being stored. And that's why when we built Funnelytics, we didn't want to say, you know what, we're going to try to find a way to stitch book clicks to Google Analytics user IDs, which there's no way to really know, to this Stripe payment and just try to figure a solution around that. Uh, we fundamentally said, in order for this to work, we've got to store the data ourselves. We've got to be able to store it in this particular way so that people can surface it on this canvas in this way. And that's really what it will end up coming down to. More and more, Google Analytics will be less useful because it's going to be a portion. And then Facebook is going to be this portion and that portion. And you need something that fundamentally allows you to track and store the data yourself, which are first-party tracking software. So... We'll see how it all plays out. It'll be an interesting game, but it has been an interesting game so far playing with analytics in general. It's a, it's a beast in its own right, trying to play with data and trying to solve data problems. And speaking of zero and first party data and the importance of zero and first party data, meaning behavioral data that we collect just through our behaviors, our consumers navigating through our websites, but also when we start thinking about zero party data and the data that they willingly give us as opposed to inferred data, the explicit data through gamification, through quizzes and quiz commerce questionnaires and things like things like what Jebit are doing and a lot of the other quiz commerce players out there, consumers are increasingly willing to give us very specific data where it benefits them in the moment throughout their customer journey. We can think about a hair coloring website, for example, and you go through these five questions and it says, 
what's the texture of your hair? What's the color of your hair? Is it curly? Is it straight? Like you give up all this information because you ultimately want the right recommendation for treatments for your hair. That is, is how I think a lot of brands are starting to better understand their customers and giving them persistent, meaningful, personalized experiences. So apart from integrating with the main e-commerce platforms, the main ad platforms, do you integrate with some of those quiz commerce platforms so that their data can also be funneled back into your platform and, and help enrich that journey? Yep. We can track any forms, any form answers. We basically install, like we've made our platform fundamentally agnostic. So we use our, our own tracking using Google Tag Manager and, and basically being able to go and decide what events do I want to go and track? So let's say I do have a, a, a form with hundred quizzes. What's really interesting about this is because we track the whole journey, what people don't know a lot of times is who is their ideal customer profile? Who is really my ideal customer profile? When you have a form that asks, let's say, let's take weight loss as an example, male or female, uh, are you trying to gain weight or are you trying to you know, gain muscle or lose weight? Are you, what is your current weight? What is your uh, goal weight? What is your activity level? Are you sedentary? Are you this? Are you that? Whatever, right? And then we're going to give you a macronutrient breakdown of what carbs, let's say, as, a, as an output of that. But what's interesting is when you collect all that information, remember how I said we, we track individual people. So now in their timeline, there is a form submission event. But in that form submission, we now know, okay, they said these answers in the form. So now when we go back to contribution, we say, okay, I want to know out of all the people who bought, let me understand what did they answer in this form. Now we can go and start to see, oh, actually 50% of them say that they're women who are trying to lose 20 pounds on average and this. And that's when you can really see that's who my ideal customer is. That's who I need to keep marketing to. That's who I need to go back to my advertising and not just say, do you want to lose weight? And say, no, are you a woman who wants to lose 20 pounds? That's how you optimize your ads, right? That's how you really optimize the engine. So yeah, we do integrate with, we pull data from any platform by using event tracking and using our tracking script. Absolutely amazing. And I see that when we talk about how you guys make your money, you're a traditional SaaS platform and that you've basically got a subscription fee. You've got the light, the plus and the max performance plan. And basically it's a fixed monthly fee for a specific tier of users tracked or people tracked. So 25,000, 100,000 and 1 million is the three different tiers. And then you've got some other things that go along with that in terms of workspaces, et cetera. So it's a very traditional SaaS model in that regard. Yeah, it is. However, a lot of what we do is education. What we've realized is fundamentally, the software is the software. Yes, you pay for the software. But what we really focus on, we have this really cool hub that is designed to help people better understand performance marketing in general and not media buying, but how to think about your strategy and all that stuff. And we have a ton of education that we put in there. So for agencies, we really work with them to figure out how do they grow their business? How do you, so in a sense, how ClickFunnels was able to grow in the sense that they are not just a page builder, but they are fundamentally an education company that is in the business of trying to teach people how to become experts and put their stuff online, right? We're not in the, we help marketers who are a little bit higher level than just getting started because fundamentally we have an analytics platform 
But a lot of it is interesting because most people aren't, even though you have a visual analytics tool, most people aren't data driven. They want to be, but they're not. So the head of growth at Microsoft may be a content guy, right? They, yeah. He knows SEO, he knows content, but he's responsible for the overall strategy. And without learning how to think about numbers and optimization and, and getting insights to improve conversions, you're still stuck. You're, it's just another way to look at numbers, much more beautiful way, but still looking at numbers that you're like, I don't know what to do with these. So we spend a lot of time on the education side because we think fundamentally, if you want to grow and you want to optimize performance and you want to impact more people with your business, you have to learn how to get more money from existing marketing dollars, not just from spending more marketing dollars, right? So that's why we do a lot of education on the site. Effectively, I think you've just described that the the juice has to be worth the squeeze, basically. Otherwise, why give it the squeeze in the first place? Absolutely amazing. Now, Mikhail, if people want to get a hold of you and learn more about Funnelytics, I'm guessing that they would just go to the, the website itself. I'll put this in the show notes, but it's funnelytics.io. Or do you like people to reach out to you on LinkedIn? How do you prefer people get a hold of you? To those two places, funnelytics.io, if you want to learn more about Funnelytics and hit me up on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my preferred. I, I try to stay away from Facebook and I prefer LinkedIn over everything else. There you go. Me too. It's my number one. It's my number one social platform. Absolutely love it. And that's how I get to meet cool people like you as well. Now we're getting to the end of our time together. And I do appreciate you sharing from your deep wealth of knowledge and experience with me today. But now I get to flip the script. I get to hand the microphone over to you. You can ask me one question, any question you like, it can be personal or professional. So Mikel Dia from Funnelytics, what's your question for me today? What has been your biggest painful moment where you were laying in bed at night and you were staring up and you couldn't fall asleep and you were just sitting there and saying, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Yep. I know exactly when. Right before we sold our business, my first e-commerce pure play business, we had about a year prior to us selling the business, we had gotten an offer to buy the business for a pretty substantial sum of money. We thought the business was going to continue to grow. We were selling memory cards at the time when memory cards were going into everything and the cloud wasn't really a thing yet. So memory cards for cell phones, memory cards for digital cameras, memory cards for this, that, and the other thing, memory cards for your GPS unit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time we ended up selling our business, memory cards for the most part, A, were dirt cheap. Two, they were given away with a lot of devices for free. So a lot of the cameras would come with a bundle with a memory card. A lot of phones would come with a bundle with a memory card. A lot of, basically every device that took a memory card came with a free one. And so it's very difficult. That was our business was called flashco.co.nz down in New Zealand. And so that was like the sole focus of our business. And latterly, we did try to pivot and add a few other things. But it's hard to pivot when that's your, what your whole entire business was built on. And when we first started building our business, a 32 megabyte, not gigabyte, megabyte memory card was like 650 bucks. And even at a relatively low margin, we were making bloody good money on that when we were importing it and selling it direct to consumer and shipping direct to the consumer's door. And then latterly, we ended up, I ended up selling it for next to nothing, the business for next to nothing, because they were going to incorporate it into a larger business that was already selling all these other things. And they wanted our contacts, they wanted our suppliers, they wanted our customer database and all these other things. And I just, I remember thinking, of all, massive missed opportunity. Second of all, why didn't we pivot sooner? Third of all, what could I have done different as an entrepreneur, as a first-time entrepreneur, 
what could I have done different to see the future with more clarity so that I could do something rather than acting like a deer in the headlights and riding this business into the ground to where it was previously worth a fair bit of money and now it's, it's worth next to nothing and I'm selling effectively for goodwill. We weren't bankrupt or anything. It was just, it was just an untenable, unsavable business as a standalone entity. And uh, that was super stressful. We had to, I had to shut down uh, our physical offices and our physical warehouse. I moved the business back home, which is where it started. started as a home-based business, and then it, that's where it ended up. And uh, it was really stressful because I, I then thought, shit, okay, I've been doing this for over seven years now. How am I going to go out and get a job working for somebody again? I don't even remember what that's like being an employee anymore. And, yeah. uh, and it proved itself out that it was almost impossible to get employed because employers also saw, thought the same thing. They thought after you owning your business for this long, how the hell are you ever going to be an employee that's coachable and trainable and can have a boss again? And it took me 268. I remember the number, 268 job applications before I got hired by an agency. And wow. that was stressful. It was a lot of hard slog. It was a lot of two, three interviews only to get declined. It was very stressful. It was very difficult. I was in the business of trying to sell the business at the same time I was trying to interview for new roles and keep paying the bills. And it was very stressful. And I just remember thinking, God, there were so many forks in the road over the last, say, previous two years that I could have done things slightly differently and it might have led to a different outcome. And there was definitely a lot of self doubt and slow self-flagellation that was going on at that time. And there was a little bit of wallowing for a week or two. I allowed myself to feel some self-pity for a week or two. Yep. And then I just thought, what's done is done. I got to get back on this horse and I got to just figure it out. And luckily, it brought me into this industry. And luckily, I'm now consulting. And all those really hard-fought lessons are, I still tell stories about those lessons today when I'm working with my clients. That hard-fought, those really hard-fought memories that are just seared into my mind, they're still paying dividends for other people today and I wouldn't change it for the world. I really wouldn't. At the time I thought, God, I wish I'd have done things differently, but now I don't think that. I just think those were super painful lessons, but the painful lessons are the ones you remember the most. 100%. They are by far the hardest ones, but they are also the ones that really shape you and, and make you realize who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. And it builds you as a character and as a person and We've all been through them, so totally. Absolutely. Listen, Mikhail, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time. Wish you every success with Funnelytics, and I can't wait to speak to you again soon. Are you a B2B or D2C e-commerce merchant? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business.